please join me in prayer. But Lord, as we gather here on this day of Pentecost, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be at work in us. Lord, as you have not left us as orphans, help us to grasp the reality of your gift to us. And we ask that you would strengthen and equip us to do all that we would do for you for the remainder of our days. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, in some ways, the last uh, two Sundays have left us hanging, right? Left us hanging, waiting, waiting for Jesus to send us the Holy Spirit. I love a good cliffhanger, although I have to confess that with miniseries today, um, it's not quite as dramatic as it used to be now that we can stream them on Netflix and Amazon and whatever service you have, right? It used to be that you'd come to the end of the series, and, or the end of the uh, episode, rather, and you'd wonder, will that person escape jail? I'm watching, um, of course the answer is always yes, right, if they're the main character. Um, I'm watching a, a series put out by the BBC right now in The Musketeers. I, I'd say that it's kind of a B-level series. It's not great. It's not terrible. Um, but it's interesting. And, of course, uh, I came, came to the end of the episode, and, and I'm left wondering, will the evil first minister of the king succeed in his plot to execute the queen? Will the musketeer escape from the dungeon? Will the lady-in-waiting who's about to be beheaded, get beheaded. And, of course, since I'm streaming it, and it's about midnight, I'm like, well, I'll just start the next episode, and got into about ten minutes, and then stopped and went to bed. In a sense, the last few weeks have been a cliffhanger, but in a sense they have not been, because Jesus leaves us to hang on his word. And is there anything that is more certain than the word of God? The answer, of course, is no. Jesus promises not to leave his disciples as orphans, not to leave them in the world alone once he ascends. And now that he's seated at the right hand of the Father, forever interceding for them and for us, we see this promise come to fruition on Pentecost, liturgically, but we know that it's also true for us, that it's also true for us, as we have the Holy Spirit through the ministry of the Church given down to us. Oh, I think my mic just came on. Thank you. So, uh, I'd ask you to open with me to our reading. We read it outside. Father Joshua read the reading from Acts. But specifically, look at St. Peter, suddenly equipped in the Holy Spirit. And he speaks about fulfilling, the fulfillment, rather, of Joel's prophecy. So look at verse 17 and 18 of chapter 2 in Acts. Peter says, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy. 
Your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. We can stop there. So there's so much going on in the texts today. There's so much going on in the texts as we look at the day of Pentecost. It's, it boggles the mind. There's so many sermons in these texts. But one of the things we see is the fulfillment of the redemptive history that God has planned from the beginning. For example, another sermon could be given on the fact that the Tower of Babel is undone here on Pentecost. That the Tower of Babel, where God comes down and divides people intentionally with language because they're exhorting them, because they're exalting rather themselves, is undone with the exaltation of Jesus. That's a good sermon, but it won't be the one I give today. And yet, that framework of redemption is the big framework of what's going on in the text, of God redeeming and saving all nations, all peoples, all languages, and indeed creation itself. But what I want to focus on today is three different things that fit in that larger framework. First, the difference between having the Holy Spirit with you and having him in you. Having the Holy Spirit with you and having him in you. Secondly, the purpose of the Holy Spirit. If one can say that about the Holy Spirit, the purpose of the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, what gift the Holy Spirit gives. What gift the Holy Spirit gives. So let's look at that big picture. The day of Pentecost is that culmination of God's salvation and restoration. And as we heard in, last, in the lectionary the last few weeks, Jesus promises to send the Holy Spirit to his apostles. Jesus has ascended into heaven. But he tells them, in John, before he's even crucified, that it's to their benefit that he leaves them. Which is a curious thing. That it's to their benefit that he goes to sit at the right hand of the Father. Now, we examine what he's doing at the right hand of the Father, right? Last week and on Ascension Day, that he's interceding, he's beseeching on our behalf, of course. We see that that's to our benefit. No doubt. We have an advocate right there in Jesus. But he says something else. In John 16, verse 7, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And of course, Jesus is speaking here about the Holy Spirit. So God has commissioned the apostles and their successors to build his church. And he's promised them that the gates of hell will not prevail against it, but he's very clear that they can't do it themselves. In fact, right before the ascension, he says this to them in Luke chapter 24, verse 49, And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. That's Luke 24, 49. Why is this so important? I think that often we think of waiting for the Holy Spirit to come, and sometimes as Christians we even speak of the Holy Spirit, 
that some way he's going to show up and do dramatic fireworks and draw everybody to him, right? And that that's the norm. But that's actually not the norm. And it's not the point of the Acts reading, although it accompanies it. The miracles and signs are great, but the real focus of the text is not that at all. It's rather the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Again, look with me at our texts here. At the text of Acts, particularly. I'm sorry, the Gospel text. Look with me at the Gospel text. So it's on the back of your insert sheet there. Chapter 14. But look with me at the last paragraph of the Gospel. What does Jesus say? He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So here's where I want us to drill down today. The last line there, verse 17. You know him, says Jesus, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Those are three different things. Notice. You know him, he dwells with you, he will be in you. What the disciples are waiting for on Pentecost is the Holy Spirit to be in them, to fill them, to be inside them. What the disciples are waiting for on Pentecost is nothing less than that. And when we look at those three different things, to know him, right, is to know about, to dwell with him, Jesus says, the disciples already have that. And remember, the word dwell here is that menos word, that same word that we, we delved into a couple sermons ago when Jesus says, abide with me. Remember the word abide can mean three different things. It's, it's the same word here. So you could translate this, you could translate this, he abides with you if you wanted to. Speaking of the Holy Spirit. And remember, to abide in this sense is three different things. It means to be fixed upon, to journey with, and to await. But Jesus says that as wonderful as those things are, and they are wonderful, there's something more he has for them. And that is for them to have the Holy Spirit in you. And in the Greek, it's the same as the English, in. The word is in. Acts is very clear then that the primary act of the Holy Spirit on all those in the upper room is to fill them. There's a lot of really cool stuff that happens in Acts 2. The sound of the rushing wind, the divided tongues of fire, the many tongues that people hear the gospel spoken in their own language. But the most important thing is that the Holy Spirit fills his disciples. Look with me again at the Acts reading. Verse 4. 
And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. You know, it wasn't just the apostles that are filled with the Holy Spirit in this passage. I used to think that until someone pointed this out to me. But it's actually about 120 people that are gathered here in the upper room. If you have your Bibles, you can turn back to chapter 1 in Acts. Specifically, chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Who's there? Who is in the upper room? I'll read it to you because I don't think it's, this is not in your scripture insert. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Now there's no reason to think in Scripture that between this passage and Acts 2, anybody left. And so the Holy Spirit is given not just to the apostles, but to all those who filled the room. Why is that important? Why is that important? Because the Holy Spirit is not just for the clergy. The Holy Spirit is not just for those that wear the robes, for the successors of the apostles. The, the Holy Spirit is for all God's people, poured out upon all God's people. Do you know that there's a reason that we don't call our clergy ministers in our tradition. We call them priests, deacons, and bishops in the threefold ministry. But we don't call them ministers because you are the primary ministers of the church. You are the ministers of the gospel in our system. You are those given the gift of the Holy Spirit to spread the good news about Jesus Christ as you have been equipped and filled with the Holy Spirit. And look, if you think I'm making this up, it's exactly where Peter goes in that first sermon that he gives once he's indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We said it in our opening today. It was our acclamation. St. Peter is given an interpretation of Joel. And he's given the authority from the Holy Spirit to proclaim that this time has come. Look what he says. But Peter, standing with the eleven, this is verse 14, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Notice he's quoting scripture, but he's telling them with authority that this day has come. Verse 17, 
And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. You see the main point here. Peter's saying to them that the Holy Spirit has been poured out on all flesh. Now, to us, this is a given. But what, the whole, what Peter's saying here is actually quite remarkable to the first readers. The Holy Spirit's been poured out on women, for goodness sake. Now that sounds weird to our ear, right? But it wouldn't sound, uh, it sounds normal to our ear, rather. It sounds weird for me to say it that way to our ear. But to the Jewish ear, that would have been an amazing thing. Remember, women were only part of the Old Covenant through the circumcision of men. And here, in baptism, women are saved equally to men. Slaves, servants, will have the Holy Spirit poured out upon them. Your social status, your social station doesn't matter in this and can't block salvation. Old men and young will prophesy, right, and dream dreams. Do you see what's being said here? Do you see what Peter is preaching on? That all of the church will be equipped to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that gender goes away. It doesn't mean that we don't still have those distinctions, that there isn't a proper role for different people and all of that. It doesn't mean any of that. But what it does mean is that the Holy Spirit is given and poured onto all flesh. And this is what the prophet had foretold. The time has come. We see here demonstrated what some people call the priesthood of all believers. Have you ever heard that term before? The priesthood of all believers. That all people, that all people can access God through Jesus Christ and can proclaim his good news by the witness of the Holy Spirit in them. This is the first purpose of the Holy Spirit to get to the next point of the sermon to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. If, if you ever run into someone talking about the Holy Spirit or preaching about the Holy Spirit or claiming to have the power of the Holy Spirit and it's not exalting Jesus, they're probably not talking about the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit constantly points to Jesus as Lord and proclaims Him as preeminent, as the epistles tell us. The Holy Spirit's principal job is to testify to Jesus and to do that through the disciples and through the church. The point here is that there is no barrier to the message of Christ's salvation which the Holy Spirit has not overcome. And the second point is that the Holy Spirit brings transformation. He brings transformation. Think about this with me for a moment. Is this Peter who stands up and says, Men of Judea, listen up. 
is this the same Peter that you see in the courtyard outside of the monkey trial that Jesus gets put through? Cowering? Denying him three times? Is this the same Peter? No. You have seen a great transformation done by the work of the Holy Spirit here. This Peter proclaims boldly not just who Jesus is, but that they should repent and be baptized. Again, look with me later in the chapter. Chapter 2, verse 37 and through 40. Luke, or, uh, Acts, chapter 2, verse 37 through 40. Now when they heard this, they turned, that is those that were listening to Peter, and were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so here we see this transformed Peter, not only proclaiming Christ, but giving direction. You... Repent and be baptized, speaking with the same type of authority that Jesus spoke with. Not speculation, but instruction. He's a different man. In his tracts on the Gospel of John, St. Augustine writes this of the change in the Holy Spirit's presence. He says, The disciples already had the Holy Spirit, whom the Lord promised, but they did not yet have him in the way that the Lord promises. And so they had him and did not have him, inasmuch as they did not have to the extent that they would later. The less experience we have with the Spirit's presence, the less we can do. So you see, what St. Augustine's saying is that at the time of your baptism, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you. And yet... There are these continual outpourings of the Holy Spirit in our lives that go on. Grace upon grace is poured into us to equip us and give us the tools that we need to proclaim the gospel. Whether that's having supernatural ability to speak in another tongue, a tongue that you don't know of, or to do a miracle to convince the hard-hearted, or any number of the things that we see following in Acts. The Holy Spirit equips us to proclaim the gospel in whatever situation we're in. If we turn to him, Anglican theologian from the early half of the 20th century, Francis Hall, writes something very similar, stating that the Holy Spirit is always present, but when he's given to the disciples, he's possessed. Notice when we read our psalm today, it is the Spirit of God who gives life, right? Even the sea monster, even the Leviathan has the breath of God in him. And so in that way, the Holy Spirit's around us all. But for the Christian, he's in you. Francis Hall writes this, The Holy Spirit pervades all and is everywhere operative as efficient, and perfecting cause in all that God doeth. 
even the wicked are subject to his own overruling power, which is an important point. Even the wicked are subjects of his overruling power. The Holy Spirit can act on people who are wicked. And as the sunlight is not altered in the glory and intrinsic virtue by the foulness of the thing upon which it shines, so the Holy Spirit cannot be reduced in power or penetrative operation by the depravity of men. For the Holy Spirit, he continues, to be given means his conferring upon those whom he is said to be imparted. Now he's using very precise language here, so I want, I want to repeat this. The Holy Spirit is to be given means, what the Holy Spirit means to be given, is to confer upon those to whom he is said to be imparted a new and personally possessive relationship to himself. What's that mean? That means that you have the Holy Spirit, and yet he continually gives himself, he continually confers himself upon you. Right? You have him once you've been baptized, but he's continually pouring himself into you to the point that you have a possession of him. He goes on. A relation carrying with it personal endowments of supernatural graces. The Christian is enabled by the gift of the Spirit to regard him as personal property. Now, I read that, and my eyebrow went up. What? That seems an odd way to put it, to regard the Holy Spirit as personal property. He must know that, because he continues, that is within the limits of divinely intended purpose and benefit of the gift. But what is his point here? It's something that I think we miss too often, and that's that the God of the universe, the God who created all things, the God who is infinite, has given himself to you in holy baptism and in confirmation. He's given himself to you to possess, just like you might possess a Bible or a prayer book. If that doesn't blow your mind when you think about it, I don't know what will. That God himself says to me, here, here's me. I'm going to live inside of you because I know that you can't do it. Do you see the amazing gift of the Holy Spirit? It's not about all the flashy things. It's about the fact that God has given himself to you, to live in you, to work in you, to bring you to perfection in Christ our Lord. The gift of God in the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, nothing less. And we see that demonstrated here in the life of St. Peter. The Peter before and after Pentecost is totally different. The eternal life of God lives in him, sanctifying him, giving him a boldness that he didn't have before. And so he lives in you, sanctifying you and giving you a boldness to bring people to the font of baptism, to receive him, to bring people to the Lord's Supper, to be fed by him. Friends, this is the gift of the Holy Spirit, the gift that he endows 
in the church the gift that he gives of himself continually. He's everything that we need in every particular circumstance, no matter what that is, as long as we're subject to his will, you see. There's also seven universal gifts that come in his giving of himself. They're called the sevenfold gifts of the Spirit. We actually sung about it in our opening hymn. I don't know if you caught it, but we sung about the sevenfold gifts of the Spirit. And we also heard it in the canticle that we read when we were coming in from Isaiah. Look with me at the canticle. That's the easier place to see it. It's on page 3. This is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 11. We usually read this at Christmas. There shall come forth a shoot from the stock of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of its roots. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And here's where you should begin underlining. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by, his, by what his eyes see or decide, but what his ears hear. And so it is that we are given these sevenfold gifts of the Spirit. 17th century Anglican Bishop Jeremy Taylor writes, In baptism we undertake our duty. In confirmation we receive the strength to do it. In baptism, we undertake our duty. In confirmation, we receive the strength to do it because of the conferring of these gifts. Wisdom, the ability to apply knowledge, a gift of supernatural wisdom, understanding the guidance of the Holy Spirit to have right judgments in all things. Counsel, the personal unlimited advice of God living in you. Might or fortitude a spiritual strength and power of will for life's daily battles against the flesh, the sin, and the devil. Knowledge and discernment, judging good from evil beyond your understanding. Godliness or holy piety, a quality that draws us near to God, a spirit-filled heart, and holy fear, not the fear of the dread variety, but a right fear of understanding that what we do can be pleasing or displeasing to our Lord and Master. In short, the Holy Spirit confers a change of character. He gives us a duty and then equips us to do it. God gives himself to us. So here's your cliffhanger, because this sermon was getting too long. What are the sevenfold gifts of the Holy Spirit? And where are they in your life? And if they're not, are you praying for them? And you also have homework. So next week, we're going to talk about the sevenfold gifts of the Holy Spirit so that we can better understand this. But until then, I want you to open with me to, the, to page 11 in the bulletin. And you'll see included here from St. Augustine's prayer book, prayers. 
prayer is asking for these things from the Holy Spirit. Asking Him to stir us up, to give us the gifts of wisdom, understanding, counsel, fortitude, knowledge, godliness, and fear of the Lord. I want you to pray these every day this week in your daily prayers, whether that's during the daily office or whatever your daily prayer looks like. Pray through these and come back next week for more. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.